Amen. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is a reading from the Gospel according to Luke. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and considered in her mind what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Behold, your kinswoman Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. And Mary said, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. We're all very familiar with that gospel, right? the gospel of the Annunciation. And it is a very joyful gospel, right? We usually hear that gospel read before Christmas. John Paul II once said that the Annunciation is the most important event in human history. Right? It's kind of a, a bold thing to say. Because it's at this very moment where the Word becomes flesh in Mary's womb. And though this gospel is a joyful gospel, it is also a very sobering gospel. Because if we listened attentively, we see that the cross is very close at hand. Did you hear those last words? The angel departed from her. While this message is being revealed to Mary, she's blessed with the presence of the angel Gabriel probably to convince her, right, that she was not going crazy or that she was not hallucinating, right? Many people say they see angels, right? And maybe they do, I don't know. But here's Our Lady with this angel announcing this good news. And then all of a sudden, the angel leaves. The one who comes to announce the good news is now gone. And Mary is left alone. Now what? You know, consider Mary's situation. Most biblical scholars say that Our Lady was between 13 and 15 years old when this happened. I think the, the common opinion is that she was 14 years old. 
Mary is not officially married to Joseph yet. She's in this period that's called betrothal. So they wouldn't even live together yet as husband and wife. It's this period where Joseph would sort of be preparing their house, getting things ready. And here is Our Lady, 14 years old and pregnant. And this is just my own speculation, but I think it's fair to assume that maybe the people of her town, we all know people love to gossip, right? Certainly the people of her town might have been gossiping about Mary. Here she is, not married yet, and pregnant. One can only imagine the possible rumors that were going about. You know, it's interesting, I have a, one of my classmates from the seminary is in Rome right now studying, he's getting his doctorate degree in, in dogma. And I was asking him about this. I said, you know, is it, is it fair to assume that perhaps this gossiping about Our Lady, maybe some people saying that maybe she was an adulteress, is that possible to be true? And he said, well, I think it's possible. He said, we don't, obviously we don't have any proof of that. But then he was telling me the story about a theologian in Rome who just a couple weeks ago was talking about this very possible situation. And this theologian said, and again, this is just speculation, it's not fact, but he said, perhaps this is why Jesus had such a love and such a compassion for adulteresses, because his mother could have been considered one. I thought that was a profound thought, right? So what are Mary's options here? What are our options really before life? Especially those moments of our life that are confusing, that are frustrating, that are seemingly hopeless. For Mary and for us, there are always many possibilities. But Mary chooses really the only possibility. The only possibility that she has and the only possibility that we have. And that is to wait for God. To wait for God to provide light, to provide insight, understanding, direction, even vindication. Why? Because as Our Lady says in her Magnificat, His mercy is on those who fear Him. And as the psalmist says, 
Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion that cannot be moved. I think most of us, including myself, we live our lives oftentimes based upon the what-ifs of our life. What if I lose my job? What if I get sick or my spouse or my child gets sick? What if my car breaks down? Thousands of what ifs in our life. And obviously we can't ignore them because they are possibilities for sure. But nor can we be obsessed by them. Because I think it's safe to say that the what-ifs of our life, if we spend too much time with them, that they are guaranteed to make us crazy. Guaranteed to make us crazy. Because it's a life now whose very foundation is fear. And what does St. John tell us? Perfect love casts out fear. And I think it is Our Lady, and probably only Our Lady, who has this perfect love, who is able to act as she does, trusting in the, in the Lord. Because her love cast out the fear. Not saying that the fear wasn't present. That she wasn't paralyzed by it. That she wasn't overwhelmed by it. In my house when I was growing up, I might have shared this before, but my father is a, a Vietnam veteran. And so he was, he was shot in the war. And in his arm and because of that he was never able to get a good job our entire life and so in my household there was so much anxiety about money we were my father and my mother were always I would always hear them talking how are we gonna pay for summer camp how are we gonna pay for college how are we gonna pay for the groceries this week. Very real concerns, obviously. But it's interesting because growing up, I feel like in some sense I inhaled a bit of that anxiety about the future. And in some situations, I felt like I was almost condemned by my circumstances and by my situations, that I would never be able to break out because of this constant anxiety that I, that I heard in my household. And I thought I would always be sort of condemned to this poor life. And now the ironic thing is, I take a vow of poverty. Right? <laughs> I solved that problem, huh? I don't want your stupid money anyway. <laughs> But Mary lived, I believe, 
not by the what-ifs of life, but what I like to call the what-is, or the what-is-real of life. And what is real, or what was real for Our Lady, first and foremost, is God's love. It is God's mercy. And it's God's fatherly care and providence. That's what Our Lady lived in. The what is real. Yes, the what-ifs were there, of course. But more than that was what is real. And so, what does waiting for God mean? What does waiting for God look like? Well, it's interesting because waiting for God is never a passive thing. So we don't just stay at home and sit on the couch and watch TV all day and say, oh, God will provide, he'll help us pay the bills. That's not at all what we're talking about. You know, you've probably heard the story of these two men who are on a deserted island. And one of the men prays all night that God would save them. And the, he wakes up the next morning and he tells his friend, God told me last night in a dream that he himself is going to come and save us. And later on that day, there's a helicopter that flies over the island and it sees these men. And so the, the pilot drops a, a ladder down, a rope ladder, and the, the other guy climbs up the ladder and he yells down to the other guy, hey, aren't you going to come? This is our way out. And the guy says, no, God promised me he was going to come and get me today. And so the other guy's like, fine, whatever, I'm out of here. And so a couple days goes by and the other guy on the island dies. And he comes before Jesus and he says, Lord, I thought you said you were going to come and rescue me. And Jesus says to him, hello, you idiot. What do you think that helicopter was? <laughs> he probably didn't say idiot. That's my own. <laughs> but what's the, what's the lesson in that story? It's that we have to learn to pay attention to reality. That we have to live our circumstances because that's where God is. You know, there are seven capital sins, right? I think there should be an eighth capital sin that I consider extremely dangerous. And it's daydreaming. Daydreaming in my opinion, is one of the deadliest things, not only in the spiritual life, but in just in life itself. Because it takes me out of reality where God is. And it places me in a false world, a fantasy land that doesn't exist. Right? How often times do we say, you know, I don't know, if only traffic wasn't so bad in the morning, I wouldn't have such road rage and I could pray and I could be better. Or if only the people I lived with weren't so annoying. 
or whatever it might be, this constant daydreaming about what if, what if, what if. And yet God is not in those what ifs. He's right here, right now. And when we're paying attention to reality, when we're living our circumstances, in their, in their rawness, that's where the grace of God is. You know, Mark Twain once said, I have lived a long life and I've done many things, many of which have never happened. <laughs> this living in a fantasy land. Our Lady had to immerse herself in reality that this is how God has acted and I'm going to be obedient to this reality that God has called me to. Do I understand it? Of course not. Can I figure it out? Of course not. But God has spoken. And so waiting on God means living our real lives with hope, with trust, and with confidence in God. Because as St. Paul says, and this is such a profound verse, in everything, everything, God works for good for those who love him. Right? Even tragedy, God can bring good out of it. Even suffering, there's grace there for those who keep their eyes on the Lord, for those who are waiting on God. That's why this waiting for God is really an active disposition. I heard this story uh, about a year ago. It was some major company that had just laid off about a hundred of its employees. And, you know, as you can imagine, everyone's distraught, right? They have family, they have children. Now, all of a sudden, they just lost their job. And this, this big boss or whatever who made this decision, he had a friend who was a minister. And he asked his friend to come in and talk to these people who he just fired, right? I would have hated to have been that minister. It's like, do your own cleanup, all right? I'm out of here. But this minister comes into a room where all of these people, these 100 people are, who just lost their job. So you can imagine the anxiety that is there. And this minister walks into this room, he comes to the front, and he looks out at all of them. And the first thing he says to them, he says, congratulations. Definitely not the first word I would say. <laughs> he says, congratulations, because in a year from now, if you keep your eyes on the Lord, you will be in a much better place than where you are right now. Not meaning that you're going to have an easy life, or that you're not going to struggle, you're not going to suffer. But if you keep your eyes on the Lord, you will be in a much greater place than you are right now. Because this very experience demands tremendous faith. This very experience demands tremendous hope. 
this waiting on God. You know, even in my own vocation as a friar, I've been a friar now for 15 years. And before I joined the friars, I was discerning with a, uh, a cloistered contemplative community, the, the Trappists in upstate New York. And the Trappists lived this beautiful life of, of solitude and silence. And I was always sort of split. You know, I loved the friars, I loved the work with the poor, but I also loved this deep contemplative life. And I really struggled for about two years. You know, Lord, which way, where are you calling me to? And eventually, obviously, I joined the friars. Yet even in these 14 years, there was always like this tension that I experienced in my own vocation. Because, yes, I knew I was called here, but I also wanted a, a deeper contemplative life than what is sort of, I guess, the common CFR life. And for 13 years, I just lived in many different friaries with this always in the back of my mind, sometimes wondering, Lord, why have you given me this desire? How are you going to fulfill this? And to be honest with you, it wasn't until about two years ago where I moved to where I live now up in Monticello, where this sort of dream or this sort of idea has become a reality. Because of where I live now, I have large periods of time of solitude and silence. But then I also come out and preach and, and work with the poor. And in some sense, it's taken me 14 years to get to that place, which really is nothing. I think God knows how impatient I am. So he just made it happen quicker, right? Abraham is 99 before he has a child, okay? So 14 years is not that long. But the question can be asked, you know, how, do was, how did I live in those 14 years? Did I live sort of passively? And sometimes, yes, I did. But sometimes I recognized, hey, when someone was at the door, it was time to answer the door. When it was time to pray, it was time to pray. If it was time to speak to a thousand teenagers, it was time to speak to a thousand teenagers. All the while being obedient to reality, yet hoping and waiting that somehow and in some way, which I knew would not always be my version of how this would look like, but God's will would become reality. But meanwhile, I had to wait. And Mary, of course, is our best example of this. This waiting on God. And I'd like to just take a short little biblical tour with Mary through the Bible just to sort of show us how Mary embodies this perfectly. After the Annunciation, right, the Gospel that I just read, what happens to Mary? Does she retreat into a cave? Does she throw herself a pity party? She does the exact opposite. Mary goes to care for her cousin Elizabeth, who is in herself a similar predicament. 
They're the, for, they're the first sort of support group for these miraculous things that God is doing. And Mary just doesn't go to say, it's going to be okay, Elizabeth. She stays with her for three months. And I think it's reasonable to assume that during that time, Mary must have asked herself, maybe when she was going to bed at night or when she woke up in the morning, what is happening to me as Jesus is being formed in her womb? God, what are you doing? I'm 14 years old. And yet, how does Mary respond? She waits. She trusts. She surrenders herself to God. At the wedding of Cana, Jesus, Mary, and the disciples are at a wedding. And the wine runs out. And what does Mary say to Jesus? She says, they have no wine. A simple request made without anxiety and without fear. Without worry. And then what does she say to the waiters? Do whatever he tells you. Because he, not you, is in control. In other words, she tells those waiters, wait, trust, and surrender to him. The three years of Jesus' public ministry, Mary is oftentimes with Jesus as he's preaching, as he's healing, as he's performing miracles, as one day he might experience awe and admiration from the crowds, and the very next day, rejection and ridicule. And you might ask, well, what does that have to do with Our Lady? Well, Mary is the first disciple. St. Augustine says that before Mary is mother, she is disciple. And so when Mary says yes to the angel Gabriel, she, in a sense, accepts Jesus as her Lord and Savior. She becomes the first disciple. And while everyone else is trying to figure out who this Jesus is, while all the religious people are having their little debates over in the corner and arguing about, no, the Messiah can't do this, the Messiah can't do that, or the Messiah will be like this, Mary is in the midst of them, knowing exactly who her son is. And she never gets in Jesus' way. She never tells him what to do or how to do it. She waits. She trusts. And she surrenders herself to God. During Jesus' Passion, and I think this is brought out so beautifully in the movie, The Passion, Mary is walking with Jesus 
the entire way. While everyone else has, has run away, the first priests and the first bishops, they're all gone, right? Except John. Mary is there while Jesus is before Pilate. Mary is there while Jesus is scourged, crowned with thorns, laughed at. Mary is there when Jesus falls all the three times on the way to Calvary. Through it all, Mary is there. And what is she doing? She's waiting. She's trusting. And she's surrendering herself. At Calvary, the scripture says that standing by the cross of Jesus was his mother. Perhaps there was never a time when Mary felt so helpless, when the temptation to despair was so high at this moment. Those of you who are parents, isn't it true that when you feel the most helpless, is when your children are sick and there's absolutely nothing you can do for them. That is Our Lady at the cross. And what does she do there? She waits. She trusts. And she surrenders herself to God. Holy Saturday that profoundly mysterious day when the Son of God is asleep in death, when the disciples are afraid and hiding, when Pilate and the Roman officers have probably forgotten about what has just happened, when the crowds are now busy about a new day's business. Mary is waiting because she knows that Good Friday is not the end. Easter Sunday, and this was my own meditation this past Easter, was Mary, was Our Lady surprised when she heard that Jesus was risen? My own thought, again, this is my own speculation, was that Mary was not surprised. The disciples were surprised because they were not waiting on God. But Mary had been waiting on Him her entire life. And my own meditation is that when Mary heard the news of the resurrection, she wasn't surprised that Jesus was alive, but she was more overcome with awe and wonder that this would be the way, this would be the method that God would choose to redeem the world, that the fullness of that promise at the Annunciation was now made visible to her. Remember, Our Lady wasn't given a playbook at the Annunciation to say, okay, this is what it's going to look like. And now finally, on Easter Sunday, Mary could see the whole picture. But she always knew that Good Friday wasn't the end.
And so for Our Lady, God is not a problem to be solved, but a mystery to be embraced, to be loved, to surrender to. And so how does this relate then to this silent, this contemplative prayer that we've been talking about? Well, I think we could define the silent prayer as simply waiting on God, right? Because in this contemplative dimension of prayer, we're not telling God what to do. We're not telling God how to do something. We're not telling God when to do it. But we are simply being with God, waiting on God, relishing in His presence. Cardinal Robert Sarah says that the greatest joy in life is simply being with God. I love that quote. The greatest joy in life is simply being with God. And we see this, I think, in the scriptures often, but probably the most common one, way, common place we see this is in the story of Martha and Mary. Right, we're all familiar with this story. Jesus goes to visit his friends, Lazarus, Martha, and Mary. And when Jesus comes in, Mary literally falls to his feet and just sits at his feet doing nothing. And Martha is busy about many good things. Certainly, Jesus must be thirsty or hungry, so i got to take care of these needs. And when Martha is complaining to Jesus about her sister, what does Jesus say? He says, Martha, you are anxious about many things. Mary has chosen the better part and it will not be taken from her. Jesus is not condemning activity, but Jesus is condemning activity that is anxious, activity that is not waiting on God, activity that is not the fruit of sitting at his feet, listening to him. You know, traditionally, Martha and Mary, sometimes in the church, we view that as the symbols of the active and the contemplative life. Mary is the contemplative and Martha is the active. To be honest with you, I don't really like that analogy because it makes it seem like, okay, well, Mary can just go off and be with Jesus, but the majority of us, we have to be busy about many things. And so that part is not for us. And there certainly couldn't be anything further from the truth. Because all of us, especially those of us who are busy, have to spend time sitting at the feet of Jesus, simply desiring nothing but to be in his presence. You know, I think it was St. Francis de Sales who said, you know, everybody should pray for 30 minutes a day, except when they're busy. Then they should pray for an hour. <laughs> 
It's this reminder that, yes, we can't spend all day sitting at the feet of Jesus. But if we're not sitting there at least a little bit, our activity is going to be frantic. It's going to be anxious. It's going to be not led by the Holy Spirit. And so it's Mary who embodies this perfectly. She is an icon of this silent prayer. And what she is teaching us, what she is reminding us, I believe, is that this silent waiting is our only option. Remember, it doesn't mean not doing anything. But this silent waiting where my heart and mind, everything, is focused and centered on the Lord. And you might think, you know, this sounds great, but it's not for me. I'm too busy, right? I have too many, too many needs. And yes, it's true. We all have many needs, right? We have physical needs, material needs, we have the needs of our family, the needs of our, our friends. But the greatest need of the human heart, the greatest need of my heart and your heart, is to rest inside the only place where it fits perfectly, in the heart of God. And when you ignore the deepest desire, the deepest need of your heart, you ignore God. Let me say that again. When you ignore the deepest desire, the deepest need of your heart, you ignore God. In the book of Lamentations, it says that it is good to wait for the salvation of the Lord in silence. And it's Mary, I believe, who shows us this, who encourages us, and who I believe is leading us to rest and wait for the Lord in silence. Not by abandoning life, not by abandoning reality, but by living life with hope, with confidence and trust in the love and the mercy of God. Amen.